coming to you from the Philadelphia area. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. I saw a cartoon of a worm confronting a butterfly. And the worm was all mad at the butterfly and saying that you've changed. Like you've really changed. And the butterfly looks back at the worm and says, we're supposed to change. And I think that's very true to life. I mean, we need to change as people. We have to grow before the wisdom and beauty of transformation begins within us. And yet it is so much easier to ignore uncomfortable truths to resist addressing our darkness. I mean, why agonize with the heavy emotional lifting that comes with change when you can just stay exactly the same, when we can whitewash the history books and just pretend that our darkest atrocities never even happened? No, it's so much easier remaining a worm forever. And that's because, after all, transformation hurts. From Matthew chapter 20, we continue the journey that Jesus is making to the cross. And we heard the statement a week ago where where Jesus' face is resolutely set towards Jerusalem. And yet, as we saw last week, so we will see yet again this morning and in the next couple of messages, where the closer and closer that they get to Jerusalem, the clearer it becomes That the disciples, just as we do, have a lot of growing still yet to do. In our text this morning in Matthew chapter 20, as always, I want to read our text with a lot of grace. We need to remember that we are reading about the faith of others in its infant stages. A lot of times I like to ask myself, what was my faith like six months into my um, walk with Christ, and the answer wasn't, or I mean, the answer was not that good. <laughs> and yet, it comes in time. And yet, the Bible does not at all whitewash our humanity. And this, this is what we will see yet again this morning. Matthew chapter twenty and verse twenty. It says, "Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something." And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, that is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Well, last week we saw Jesus rebuke James and John for wanting to rain down fire on a Samaritan village. And in this next episode... Just a few, maybe a few days or so later, it's James and John once again. 
In Psalm 27, King David imagines if there could just be one thing that I could ask of God. And if I could ask God for one and for only one thing, he says, this is what I seek. That I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to seek him in his temple and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's what David would have asked for. And yet, as we read in our text this morning, and, and more to the point, as Mark, in his own um, rendering of the story, he also adds that as the mother of James and John makes this request to Jesus, that in this moment, James and John also say to Jesus that, Jesus, we want you to do whatever it is that we ask of you. Oh, that is a dangerous game. And so James and John and their mother are kneeling before Jesus. And they have an ask to make. And this is an ask that is of enormous importance to them. I mean, it's very evident that they've spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and wondering exactly how to ask Jesus. And so Jesus says, what do you want? Is somebody sick? Has a relative of yours died and you need me to come and intervene? Or maybe they are, they are asking how they can pray in a more fervent fashion. Or maybe they are wondering what Jesus meant when he said that he was going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Now it is James and John and their mother who say, one thing that we would ask of the Lord, this is what we seek, God. And that is, we want power, Jesus. We want to have eminence in your kingdom. We want to be exalted and venerated above all other people. We want to have authority and we want you to anoint us above all of the other apostles. I mean, James and John want to get theirs. And all of the other apostles, it says, are irate at them. And they're very angry with them. And I mean, why would they be mad at them? Well, they're mad at them because they're trying to manipulate Jesus into giving them positions of rank. And all of this is playing out right in front of their eyes. But even worse... They're getting mommy to do it for them. I mean, they're trying to schmooze Jesus over. It kind of reminds me of a Sammy K song from 1941. Daddy, I want a diamond ring, bracelets, everything. Daddy, I want clothes with Paris labels. Daddy, I want a brand new car, champagne, caviar. Daddy, you want to get the best for me. And I mean, what James and John are doing is so gross that even Judas Iscariot is offended by his behavior. I mean, do you realize the degree of difficulty of offending that creature? <laughs> I mean, the only other time Judas Iscariot is offended is when a person pours costly perfume on Jesus rather than selling it and letting him steal the proceeds. This is who is now offended at James and John. <laughs> And yet, obviously, the only problem with their whole strategy is that Jesus cannot be schmoozed. Jesus cannot be bought or, 
or strong-armed or, or even coerced into making a subjective choice that he's going to later on regret. I mean, it has the appearance of reverence as they bow down before Jesus, yes, but this is really a precursor to praying with selfish motives. I just imagine Jesus looking at them in such a way as power, eminence, and superiority. Is this what this whole thing is to you guys? And it just makes me wonder, what do I want from God? If there could be just one thing that you could ask of God, I mean, what would we ask of the Lord? Would it be that we would drive platinum Lamborghinis down 24 karat gold streets? Is it that we want to earn a penthouse suite in heaven someday? Or is the one thing that we would ask of God for God to announce that, that we are winners in all of our religious debate with the Baptists and Episcopalians? Or that God says that all of those on the ultra left are the ones who are right, and all of those on the ultra right are the ones who are wrong? Or vice versa. I mean, is that what this whole thing is about? Well, what Jesus invites us to is so much bigger and is so much greater than that, though. Well, as we see in the text, James and John are entangled in at least three snares. I think the first is, is all too obvious, is that they think that Jesus is going to rule over Israel. And only Israel. And they were not alone in this thought, by the way. I mean, even Mary thought this. I mean, everybody except for Jesus thought that it's just a matter of time. Where all hell is going to break loose. Something's going to happen. And then Jesus is officially going to be coronated as our Jewish Caesar. He's going to wage a violent revolt. And then we will conquer the Romans. And then maybe even we will occupy Rome one day. We're going to give them a taste of their own medicine. And I mean, for all of this time, as Jesus has spoken on the hilltops and healed the masses and fed the multitudes, James and John have been in a daydream. They've been daydreaming about themselves seated upon lofty thrones while multitudes of soldiers are doing sword drills in front of the royal palace. They're daydreaming of Jesus' voice maniacally ringing out in the air where his next Sermon on the Mount is a wild-eyed declaration of war and of conquest. For a very long time, their, their minds have been spinning with, with wild, unrestrained imagination that, that our names are going to go down in the annals of history with all of our, with all of our military grades. It's going to be Joshua, Gideon, David, and then James and John, the sons of thunder. And now with Jesus' eyes resolutely set on Jerusalem, James and John are sensing that, that all of this is about to finally start happening. And now we have them approaching Jesus and saying, listen, Jesus, we, we talked it over. And we decided that you will still be the king. And isn't that mighty generous of them? They're, they're still going to let Jesus be king. But we just want you to give us the next most powerful titles in your kingdom. 
And so just make one of us your viceroy. It doesn't matter who. You can make one of us your viceroy, and then you can make the other your secretary of defense. I mean, we saw last week what they would have done with those kind of powers. And so they, they um, think that this is an earthly kingdom, but really they're also living in a very hierarchical society. Now, where you ranked was everything in this culture. Oftentimes, you would be invited to come over to a dinner. Many people would be present. And the most important thing in these first century dinners was the seating chart. That seating chart was a barometer for your worth as a human being. You would sit down at a table and you would see where you stacked up against everybody else in your society. It would reveal who you were greater than, and it would show you who you needed to surpass. And so it was customary to, to have a guest of honor. He would have the most important seat at the left of the table. Then you would have the host, and then you would have the rich and the luminaries. You'd have the middle and the poor, and then at the very far right of the table, not even seated, but, but kneeled upon the floor, you would have slaves. You would have, let's just call her Leah, the slave girl. A female slave was as low as you would get in this society. And so what James and John also have in mind here is that they want to move up 10, 15, 18 shares at the next banquet that they attend. They want to be able to sit down at a dinner and see all of the other people who now they are greater than. And yet, even that is not enough for James and John in this moment in their lives. But rather, they want to live in the king's palace. They want to reach a point where they are seated upon diamond thrones as kings and as foreign dignitaries bow down before them and reach out and kiss their ring. And yet, they are also entangled and ensnared in ministerial competition. Now in Luke's gospel, there is, there's been this ongoing debate that they have been having amongst themselves. Luke chapter 9 and verse 46 says that an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest apostle of all. Well, we fast forward all the way to Luke chapter 22 and we, we come to the very end almost. I mean, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He has just instituted the Lord's Supper. Gethsemane is just maybe one to three hours away. In the morning, Jesus is being nailed to a cross. And yet even this late into everything, we're told in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, yet again, how a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to, be re, was to be regarded as the greatest. And I mean, even after his resurrection from his grave, yet again we see the rivalry continue. As John himself writes his own gospel later on, it's believed that he uses a literary device where rather than referring to himself, he, he refers to himself in a different way, in as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Now, this may have been a very innocent thing that he did, just meaning Jesus loves me. And yet it's also a possibility that this is insecurity speaking. That Jesus loves me a little bit more than everybody else. We don't know this for certain, but in John chapter 20, listen to the way that John speaks about the resurrection of Christ. John chapter 20 and verse 2, he says, So Mary Magdalene ran and went to Simon Peter. Then hear this. Mary Magdalene goes to Simon Peter and John says, And she also went to the other disciple. You know, the one who Jesus loved. <laughs> Dropping down in verse 3, and so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And then, especially notice in verse 4, John says, And so both of them were running together, and yet the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. I mean, can you see what is going on in the text right here? John is literally racing the apostle Peter to see which one of them reached Jesus' tomb first. And when John wins his foot race with Simon Peter, John brags about winning his foot race. He says, I was the one who got to the term, or I was the one who got to Jesus' tomb before Peter or, or all the other apostles. I got there first. I mean, are we eight, John? <laughs> I mean, is um, physical fitness a parameter for who loves Jesus the most? And yet regardless, as we see in our text yet again, though, what this also reveals to us is that being in the inner circle of Jesus Christ was not enough for James and John. But now they are trying to push Peter out of the inner circle right in front of Peter. And that's because in our text, their idea of the Holy Trinity is not God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Their idea of the Holy Trinity are the three J's, Jesus, James, and John. I mean, can you see why Jesus prays for his believers to be one? You know, it's coming at a time when they are rivals rather than brothers. And yet lastly this morning, though, what Jesus teaches James and John in time and, and what he also has to say to you and I this morning is that greatness in the eyes of Jesus Christ is so foreign to greatness in our eyes. Jesus is saying to James and John here in Matthew chapter 20 that, that if you want to be great in my Father's kingdom, Look no further at a throne, but, but rather look to a cross. Now a cross was the ultimate emblem of disgrace, but, but Jesus says, look to the cross for greatness. And that's because very soon, sure enough, Jesus was crowned and he was coronated as king of the Jews. And there was one on his right and there was one on his left, but it was not James and it was not John. When Jesus was coronated as the king of the Jews and, and he was crowned, on his right and on his left were a couple of thieves. Just a couple of nobodies whose names nobody knew. And they were crucified with Jesus, one on his left and one on his right. 
And I love so much how a writer named Brian Zahn says it when, when he says that when you hear Christians speaking about God raising up politicians or raising up generals to bring about his purposes, just remember that they don't know the first thing about the basic nature of the kingdom of God. We don't have to win an election or win a war for the kingdom of God to come among us. The kingdom of God does not come by ballots or bullets. It comes by the cross of Christ. James and John don't even know it. But when they demanded to be seated at Jesus' right and at his left, when they said that they could drink the cup that he would drink and be baptized with the baptism that he would undergo, they were handing Jesus their death certificates. And they were imploring Jesus to sign it with their blood. James and John's mother doesn't even know it, but, but as she bows down before Jesus and makes this request along with her sons, she's pleading with all of her heart, Jesus, please let my sons die for you in the most ghastly way imaginable. Let them be persecuted and hunted to the ends of the earth. Notice that as Jesus speaks of him being lifted up on a cross, he's using language of a dinner and of a banquet where a host would, would raise a glass to all of his guests. Jesus is saying to his disciples, James and John, you're not drinking the cup of conquest over our enemies. But rather, you are lifting the glass of having your hearts of stone conquered by the grace of God. You're not going to be baptized into the baptism of spilling Roman blood. You're, you are going to be baptized into the baptism of exile and persecution. You're going to be baptized into the baptism of having your blood spilled on my behalf. And it is no coincidence whatsoever that the very last thing that we see Jesus saying to his disciples as he was being lifted up into heaven, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, is that you will be my witnesses in all the earth. Now our North American ears hears that word witness and we um, think that it means dropping off a gospel track in a bus station somewhere, but... To James and John and to all the other apostles' ears in the Greek language, this means that Jesus is saying to them, you're going to be my martyrs. You're going to bleed for me. You're going to die and you're going to be exiled for this thing. And sure enough, as the annals of history attest to, some of those apostles were crucified. Others were killed with swords, stoned to death clubbed to death, stabbed to death. Only John lived and died at a natural manner, but even he again, John was exiled. And yet, let's get away from them and let's speak about us now. And that's because to you and to me and to anybody who desires to follow after Jesus, Jesus says, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny themselves. And let them lift up the cross of dying to their own desires and living to me every single day of their lives. 
In Matthew chapter 20 in our text, Jesus goes on and it says in verse 25 that Jesus calls his followers together and he says to them, Jesus says that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must become your servants. And whoever wants to become first among you, they must become your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus is saying to them is don't look to Alexander the Great. Look to Leah the slave girl. Don't look to Alexander the Great. Look to Ralph the janitor. We might imagine a custodian who works in a bus station somewhere. He's not some power-hungry autocrat. He's just some guy in a ratty jumpsuit mopping floors and scrubbing toilets. He's living on food stamps. He rides the bus every day to work, and it drops him off at home in the trailer park. And yet every day as he works, his back is aching from his servitude. And yet Ralph has the biggest smile on his face as he does it, eight, nine, ten hours a day. And that's because Ralph, he's working for Jesus Christ. As Jesus says that the greatest among you will be your servant, it is the word for a deacon, which is um, diakonos. What diakonos means is literally a waiter, or it's one who runs an errand. And yet I love the word diakonos because it has very vivid imagery in the language where it is the idea of a person who is working so hard on, on another's behalf. That they are literally kicking up a cloud of dust behind them. And one of the most absolute, holiest, most sacred things that, that Jerry has ever instilled in me as my shepherds have been the times where we have pulled weeds together on the church lawn. Where he taught me how to pressure wash the church walkway. I mean, my Nikes got soaked. And I got stung by a wasp. And yet there's just something about taking on the posture of a servant that has a way of breathing life into our souls. And not very long ago when I was sick and COVID tests were next to impossible to acquire, by sundown, multiple women in this church had dropped off box after box of their own personal tests. They went shopping. They left bags of groceries by our front door. They were literally kicking up dirt, doing everything that they could do in order to play a role in my recovery. And I mean, the very first time that Jesus settles his disciples' argument about who was going to be the greatest, Jesus pulls a child aside and says that unless you humble yourselves and, and enter and, and um, receive me as a little child would. You're never even going to see my kingdom, let alone rule it. 
And the very last time here in the upper room that Jesus settles their debate once and for all, he settles it with a towel and a basin of water. Where we see Jesus, who is the host of the banquet of the kingdom of heaven, King of kings and Lord of lords, God in human flesh, he, he stands up from his seat of honor, goes all the way around that table, and assumes the very lowest position of all, of Leah the slave girl. And he washes each and every one of their feet. And you know, when I was in seminary, I thought that it was very unfortunate that it is a tradition before graduation for, for everyone to vote for the two best preachers out of everyone in the whole class. There was a lot of humility in my class, but you would also see the smugness. You would see people jockeying and trying to schmooze their way to one of those two spots. You would see the one-upping and the self-elevation going on and people walking around as if they were the only ones who had any business being a preacher. And yet the one who I voted for was George Del Bosque. George Del Bosque had no idea how to put a sermon outline together. I mean, the guy had a fifth grade vocabulary. No matter the text, every single sermon George preached was, was exactly the same. He would always say, with the biggest smile on his face, I'm just an instrument of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anybody had a right to walk around and to prop up a collar and, and to act as if they were better than everyone, it was Jesus, but he didn't do that, and so neither should we. I think Jesus would look at George Del Bosque and say, that is the only one who should be speaking. And when I was younger, I used to dream of traveling the world doing keynotes at conferences. But when I saw all of the, the schmoozing and, and glad handling that ensues as preachers compete for proximity to keynotes, when I saw what having a person's name and lights can do to a person's ego and status, let's just say that that is a childish fantasy that I happily let go of many years ago. There's nothing wrong with being asked to do a keynote, but I'm not living for that stuff anymore. It's not going to determine my self-worth. And yet rather, what does um, have a lot to say to me, though, is a minister named Jeff Robison. We were members of a house church or, or of um, a small group study many years ago in Florida. Jeff Robison was, was a minister at that church. And, and after our study, he would just kind of vanish and you wouldn't see him. And you would get up and walk around, and every time there he was, washing someone else's dishes in their kitchen. And I mean, that is greatness in the kingdom of heaven. I think that is Jesus' idea of what a keynote sermon is all about. Well, as we close this morning, I just want to ask us, I mean, do we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Well, as we've seen in our message this morning, it is not the ones who preach the most keynotes. It's not the ones who baptize the most people or, or who win the most debates. It's the ones who kick up dust 
being Leah the foot washer, Jeff the dishwasher, Ralph the janitor, and child of God who is the cross lifter every day of their life.